Hello, everybody. Um, welcome once more to another episode of Africa Careful. In today's episode, we are going to talk about what is happening in America. It is sad daily as we turn on the news media. We watch the lives of black men being gunned down by police. The question that is going on in our minds is really what is happening. And some of you might also be wondering how do we as Africans or as a black man, uh, respond to such uh, violence that we we see on TV. Before we begin today, I think I would just go ahead and share with you some thoughts. I am one who is personally restrained from sharing my views on a lot of these things online. But uh, given that uh, these things have just become second nature now and they've just become rampant, I think um, being silent about them is no longer an option. When I first came to America, what was it, 12 years ago, this is not the America I hoped that I would be able to live in. Um, it's not one that I, I ever imagined would happen. I come from a country where if you had an issue, you would go to the police station and they would try to resolve that. Uh, this is very interesting because one of my very first experience in America I was a friend relating to me his experience with the police. He came here uh, and he was lost on the streets one day. He saw a police car. He ran to it and stopped the cop and tried to ask the cop for help and for directions. The cop was surprised, but he, you know, he tried to explain to him that I'm a foreign student. I'm trying to get here. I'm lost. Can you help me out? Uh, the cop really had never experienced that in himself, and so it was kind of weird. But he decided to help the guy and. You know how cop cars are built in America. There's really no room for a passenger in the front. So the cop had to give him a ride and so carried him in the back. People were shocked when they saw him in the back of a cop car being driven around. They thought he was arrested or something, but he wasn't. He, the cop was just giving him a ride. And, you know, a lot of people told the world, you know, that's not really how things work in America. We just don't really uh, go to the police like that for help. So that story, I really did not understand that back then when I came here because it was really fresh. That was a week into America. People were telling him, well, you know, we you know, probably don't do that kind of a thing. But now as we fast forward into the future, um, we be I began to see why that story may have been strange, even for Americans to relate to, um, especially for someone who had come from out of the country. Uh, personally, I am exhausted. I have, in the last few weeks, been questioning if really America is a place for me to stay in, if really America is a place where I should uh, continue to call at least my home from now or to start to look elsewhere. It's just been funny. When this whole lockdown started, I actually started to run. I decided, well, you know, I'm going to probably stay at home a lot. I'm going to eat. I'm going to put on a few pounds. You know, maybe I should start you know, exercising, going around the neighborhood. You know, ironically, I live in the east downtown of Houston. So it's things can, you know, in the downtown area, things can get really sketchy with police always running around. And uh, I started running consistently every day, except Saturdays, um, for about three weeks. And then there was the news of the guy who got shot running. The guy I'm talking about is Amud Aubrey. And to be honest with you, I just stopped running. I stopped running because I was scared. I was scared that... You know, somebody might just mistake me running one day and just, you know, shoot me down. Um, when I started running, I, I taken it upon a habit to not use the same route every day as a means to not 
you know, I'll be stuck with the same routine. But then as I began to reflect on that, it's like, well, maybe someone might see that I'm coming around a particular area only twice a week and I might become a threat. So I, I just stopped. Um, until today, I've not even run again. It's been, I think, a, a month now. I've not been running anymore. And so this is the life that we live here in America. And really the question is, you know, what should we do? How should we respond? Um, more recently, we've seen a video of George Floyd. Who a cop knelt on his neck, uh, him saying he can't breathe. I haven't even gathered the courage to watch the video. But these are the sort of brutalities and the reality that we have to live in. Really, the, the, the question is, what should I do? How should I respond? Should I go out and also join the riots? And if I don't join the riot, am I doing a disservice to my own people? You know, these are the things that are running in my mind. But, but then I am also confused why it is that as a black man, uh, what it is that the cops see in me that make me a threat instantly. I will recount one more experience, and this happened to me very recently, because, you know, as you begin to, as we've been watching all these, the news and the police brutality and attack on black men, it's also given, um, at least for me, a moment to reflect on my own experience with the police. More recently, it was in December, I was driving to Nebraska um, for a graduation. I live in Texas, so going to Nebraska by road, you have to go through Oklahoma, then Kansas, and then into Nebraska. It was around maybe 3 a.m. in the morning as I was driving through because I left Houston late. We we're trying to make it there very early in the morning by 7 a.m., so we left Houston around 8 p.m., hoping that we'll get into Nebraska by 7 a.m. This was around 3 a.m. I'm somewhere in Kansas, uh, and a cop you know, pulls me over. I didn't know what was happening. Um, at the time, I didn't make of it a big deal, but really thinking about it now, you know, I'm just in shock of what happened. The cop pulled me over. I was in the car with my sister. I was in there as well with my fiance. We're driving up to, you know, to Nebraska. It was her graduation uh, ceremony. We're trying to get to her pinning ceremony as a nurse. So as the cop pulled, you know, stopped us, came to my side as, as the one who was driving. I didn't make of it at the time, but as he approached, he had his hand on his gun. You know, we had watched the news and it's just become second nature to us now as black men in America that my hand was just on the wheel. You know, he's asking, the, and, and in anticipation of him coming by me, I already had my driver's license, you know, visible there, just, you know, so that if I stretch my hand to pick it up, it's not like... Um, it's a gun that I'm, I'm getting out. I don't even own a weapon. So it was just funny. And then he just started asking random questions. You know, where am I from? Where am I headed to? And I'm from Houston. I'm going to, why are you going to Lincoln, Nebraska? You know, what's, you know, what's there? And then it was funny because we're three of us in the car, all black Africans. And so, you know, he called his buddies. You know, it was one cop, and then I saw, you know, two cars come by. At the time, I didn't make, I, I didn't think of it as a big deal because I'm like, I am just going to Lincoln, Nebraska, for this nursing painting ceremony. So, to me, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a big deal. But, and then the weirdest thing happened: they separated three of us, they intervened us, asking us the same questions to try to see if our stories match up. Who are you? Who are these people to you? Um, 
you know, where you guys are headed to, where in Houston do you live, you know, what's your address, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was just, I was just shocked. And I, we ended up spending about 35 minutes there just for, I, I stopped till this day. I have no idea why. Um, but in light of everything that's happening, this is the reality that we have to face in America. And it, it can be scary. Now it's like, should I even leave my home? Like I recounted earlier on, I chose not to go on runs anymore. Now, even when I drive on the, on the road, I become very more aware. I don't, I try not to speed because one, I guess, routine traffic stop could be something else. You know, yeah, we were in Kansas. I had no idea. What if our stories didn't lined up? Uh, what if my, you know, what if, you know, I said, this is my sister, this is a fiance of mine, this is my fiance, all those things. What if we all gave different stories? What would have happened? That is just the reality we live in. So in this episode, I've decided to bring back our good friend, uh, Dr. Dalit Surui, to be able to help us make sense of a lot of these, because this is the reality that a lot of us Black men Black people, people of African descent are facing in America. Hopefully he can be able to um, help us make some sense of this and what are some ways in which we can respond. Uh, why is it even that we have this uh, a disparity uh, of police and brutality amongst, amongst our kind? What is it that we have done? Um, given that he's somebody who studies this and make a life out of it, so maybe he might be able to help us uh, and share some light on this. So welcome once again, Dalito, to the to the Careful. Um, for those of you guys who haven't listened to our previous two episodes, I encourage you to go back there and uh, listen to those episodes. But um, welcome back to the Careful, Matt. Well, thank you, brother, for always being impassionate and just being always giving. And I appreciate you creating a space. And then, oh, brother, just I mean, you know. I just kept thinking about the experience that you just shared, so powerful and, and heartbreaking in a lot of ways. Um, given again, given the climate that we're in, and just again on a moment in which you're going to celebrate an accomplishment, you're accosted by the state in a manner in which you're a suspect even before anything is proven otherwise. And so, yeah, man, you know, and so, um, and so, like you're saying, you know, part of part of this understanding, right, for for most of us bred within the continent of Africa where we have roots to more immediate places, right? Police violence may look differently than what it looks like here, right? We know that sometimes there's corruption in our own countries in which the way we engage with the police, but the level to which we see Black people here dealt with in manners in which they're dealt, you know, non-human, the violence is everyday and omnipresent is a real thing, you know, like you were talking about, you know, I think about in 1999, one of the most crazy cases that happened was with Amado Diallo. I think the brother was from either Ethiopia or Kenya, if memory serves, I can't remember. But that was one of those incidents that happened in this country that was really an eye-opening experience in terms of when we think about the Black immigrant experience. Um, there was also an experience, a lot of Haitians, as they were coming in the 1990s, when immigration started opening up you know, to more African countries and and in sort of the Western Hemisphere too, in terms of Haiti, Dominican Republic. Um, so yeah, when we when we talk about police violence, I mean, America has a long history, right? Like you can start from the age of slavery, where you know in slavery the slave patrol system transformed into the police system. Um, and if we're talking about black men, there's a particular argument that happens in the Reconstruction era, post Civil War, 
in which black men become the boogeyman in American psyche, right? So you get the rise of something like feminism, which happens because white women are starting to say that if these black men get more power over us, they're going to do things like rape us. They're going to take over the country. That causes the KKK to come up. The rise of the KKK is a response to this idea that they've lost their former slaves and black people are free to do as they please, particularly take their women. Um, but more immediately, when we talk about what's going on today with police violence, I mean, this has roots in the 1960s. A lot of people, you know, people like Derek Bell were trying to point this out, Malcolm X. Um, Derek Bell was a famous Harvard professor. He taught at Harvard for a while. One of his famous students uh, was Barack Obama. But one of the things that Derek Bell had made a case for um, was that the Brown versus Board case being passed here was done so America could change its image to the global world to be able to show that it can take in minorities, right? And that's important for a couple of reasons because what America was trying to signal to the world were things like violence does not happen here, right? So the image of America to the global world was to present itself as a place where immigrants can come, they can migrate and they'll be treated okay. But one of the things that was happening internally was a fight here when um, Geneva conventions were being passed. The American Bar Association really took those calls and was really concerned with lynchings as though it happening in this country, right? So part of their concern was what constitutes a lynching, what is a lynch mob, and what constitutes genocide, right? So we know that the South had a lot of lynchings as the civil rights movement in the 60s was coming up. You saw a lot of people arguing for a need to abate this violence. Um, America had never passed a lynching law of stopping lynch laws, right? So not until I think last year was that the first time in this country where lynching was actually a federal crime. So from the 1800s to its, to its 2019, there has never been a statute that disallows white people to gather around and do as they please to a black person to suspect for anything, right? And so, so part of that has consequences in which the way the legal system works in this country is that when you look at the very ways reconstruction happens, there has never been a federal mandate against lynching, right? Um, and then part of what happens in the 1960s is that you start to see that at the same time when quote unquote civil rights is being passed, there were actually commissions that were looking at police violence, right? This was an actual issue that was happening. So what people like Derek Bell and Malcolm X were trying to point out to is that this idea of making America seem as a place absorbed of violence actually belies the mechanisms on which we're actually still having to contend with violence. So nothing was done about the police violence that was happening in the 1960s. What was done was to pass the Civil Rights Acts to seem as though like we're in a space in which white people and black people can get along together. Underneath that was always this violence or police violence that was never dealt with. Yeah. So uh, if, if I can hear you correctly, it is that um, violence has always been happening in America, but we did not um, properly address it. Instead, we passed the civil rights law and America did that as a way to tell the world that um, America is a place, you know, devoid of violence and that it's a place that, um, you know, racial minorities can come to. Um, is that also probably why you have the diversity lottery in America as a means to be able to welcome uh, folks here into America? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think this is what we're getting at, at the last podcast we spoke about the African identity. I mean, it's exactly what happens is in tandem because as so what happens when the Lincoln, when I'm sorry, when the Lyndon Johnson and the Fred and uh, Kennedy administration were looking at what's going on, this is exactly what they were doing. And this has more roots in terms of what um, FDR was doing when he was looking at the World War Ones and Twos. And so what the FDR's, um, Frederick 
sorry, Franklin Roosevelt's government uh, in terms of administrative people were looking at, they started thinking about how do we make America seem as though it has minority rights. So what they were doing is that they started using this concept called minority rights to be able to say, let's pass these rights for these minorities so that we don't allow them to do things like cause rebellions. And I think we can talk about rebellions because that, that has more immediate claims and why that idea of minority rights was passed. So again, right, instead of dealing with white violence, so again, you know, FDR, um, Kennedy and all these people, they're not dealing with violence and white violence and what is to be done with white violence. They're saying, how do we make America look as though it's open not only to black people, but to minorities across the globe? Because remember that the U.S. at this time is fighting Russia as a power, right? We see a lot of black people being uh, Marxist or communist. So the idea here was also the fight of Africa, the fighting between Western powers about what should be done with Africa, right? So you start to see the ways in which Russia, for example, is opening up its place. It's saying, look, Africans are treated well here. We can give you guns. You can participate in the in these wars. So you start to see that part of this is this consequence in this geopolitical space in which the America is trying to be an empire. And one way to do that is to show the rest of the world, here's how you treat minorities, right? So do things like pass rights for them. So again, since Reconstruction through the 1960s, white violence in its different forms and shapes has never been dealt with. What has been dealt with is to make it seem as though black people are comfortable in this country. Yeah, because that uh, leads me to my to my next question, which is that okay, we are trying to create this society, this community that makes it look like minorities are welcomed here, but we failed in that. I mean, there's we it's like we're back in the '60s where we have, uh, like you said, there's there's no been there hasn't been any federal uh, mandate against lynching. Um, if if I'm correct, and so we failed pretty much because we see these police brutality today of of black people. I mean, it, this is the new lynching in America, and it's like, why did we fail so so? I mean, so miserably. Why why this big failure? If there was all this plan, is it because that the as a society we were not ready to welcome this minority, or we're just doing some of these things? as a means to get labor force into America so as to help build the republic that it is today. No, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great point. I mean, but and that, that's a great point, and it has roots even back in the Constitution, right? I mean, part of what people like Jared Hone has made a case for is that when you look at slavery in America, the fight that happens between the British and the Americas is not for American independence, but it's for America to be the country that can actually own slaves, right? Like we tend to forget a lot of times, like there's this mythos in this country when people talk about 4th of July as this great liberation from the British. That was actually a fight about preserving slavery in this country and America being the country that could actually be confined with 13 colonies that has slavery in here. So in other words, the American legal system works around precedence, right? If there's a ruling that gets passed in the court, that becomes how a rule be passed. So in other words, the way black people were dealt with in the terms of like, we, these people are property and we use them for economic ploys and we'll pass laws and rights so long as we benefit from them, right? But never treat them as human beings has always been a precedent in this country. Underlining that is the violence that white people could do. So in the slavery, right, people like Angela Davis has made a case for like, when you look at the actual idea of something like uh, like the capital punishment or the death penalty, it starts on a slave plantation in which white people in the plantation could do with black people as they pleased. There was nothing that stopped an overseer or master from killing a black person with impunity, right? That thing actually morphed. So that even the idea of capital punishment was a fight that happens in reconstruction between 
southern white people and northern white people about the best way to actually deal with black people. Right. So at all points in this country, you see this idea of white violence as the driving force of what should be done with black people. That is always the question around the very ideas of what rights black people have. So, yeah. So so down from slavery, reconstruction through the 1960s until a contemporary moment. Right. We see the ideas of white violence. And this is beyond even just police officers. You see the ways in which like the brother who gets shot for jogging, like you were talking about, right? The mendacity that white people have to think that they can just run up on you and pull a gun and shoot you and be covered up by three three months of a DA's office not doing anything. You saw the same thing with George Zimmerman. You saw the same thing when we talk about the ways in which that the Central Park incident in which the brother told the white woman to put the dog on a leash and she causes this idea of calling the, the, the police. And that's what that is what is true to America, right? Like, when we talk about this country and construction, it's not just the government, it's that white citizens have the ability to wield power against black people, right? That has always been a truism about what it means to be in this country. So I am, I mean, as just a regular human, I am just confused. Why can someone have so much hate in their heart, in their mind, for another person just because they are for different race. I mean, I think that, you know, now we are looking and we are talking a lot about, um, you know, black people now because we are seeing a lot of brutality for them uh, in the news media by the police or by just regular um, uh, people. Uh, but this is the same thing going even with the Hispanics here in this country or other minorities here. Um, you know, they have been like, you know, mm. called rapists and, you know, drug lords and all this, all this sort of names and all of that. Um, wh- I mean, why is this the case? I mean, we've come a long way. I think that we've come a long way as a society. We have a lot of, I mean, intermarriage amongst race now. There's some kids that will identify as five different races and all of that stuff. We, we've, we've mingled a lot, but is it just that? these things that had happened in the past, we've just passed them on from generation to generation and there's really no way to be able to eradicate such, you know, such level of prejudice and hate in people. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, that's, you know, that's some of the research, you know, that people do. And that's part of some of my research is like, yeah, you, you, you know, at some point you have to ask yourself, what is it about white violence and white and white people and racism that it's passed on generationally? Right. So said differently yeah. with any other racial group, you would call that a pathology and see those people as diseased. And part of what has also happened, again, going back to um, 1940s with the civil war, I'm sorry, with the World War Ones and Twos. Social scientists at Columbia and Harvard started realizing what was happening, what Hitler was doing over there in terms of Europe and and the genocide that ensues with the Jews. They were worried around the nationalism that they saw arising. And so what they started doing is they were concerned about black people being mad with white people and maybe doing what Hitler did to them. All right. So what you then see was a concerted effort by UNESCO, right? The rise of UNESCO was a concerted effort around this idea that all racial groups are prejudiced against other people, and these groups will then act in ways in which they are violent. So what happened in the 1940s we, is that we started to think of racism as prejudice in which everybody has the propensity to be prejudicial and violent. So again, right, notice that the background of that within America is that instead of dealing with the KKK, because what has happened in the 1940s, you get the rise of the KKK, the FBI, right, Edgar Hoover and them are starting to do more things in Black communities. Even the surveillance of Black people in terms of um, the Northern surveillance, in terms of 
government surveillance starts in the 1940s in which the FBI becomes really concerned about what is happening within urban America and the need to be able to understand like what causes black people to to be able to do things like riots. So what has always been the missing point of a conversation is white violence, right? We've taken we've taken racism to be something in which you can educate white people out of, but we don't talk about white violence, right? So if there's any conversation about white violence, notice the level in which it's talking about mental illness, right? Like it, it's, and, and when you raise it to a level of mental illness, there's a cure for mental illness, right? We'll do things like what? Quarantine you in a jail. I'm being nice about that, right? But it, you you know, so like, so there are ways in which we still are okay with white violence. We just have to signal that person is just mentally ill. But the, you know, wow. but the, the thing still stands mm-hmm. to be saying violence is still here. We're not dealing with white violence. You've just made a nomenclature. You've diverted the contention by just saying that person is uh, mentally ill. That's the reason why they shot up nine people in the church. Yeah, I mean, because this is interesting. Uh it's the same thing that I've been thinking myself recently. It's like, yeah, um, you you see a white dude walks into a, a church and killed people. I mean, into an elementary school and killed and gone down kids. I mean, it's just, you can't even begin to think uh, why someone would want to do that. But, you know, this leads to the next question where it is that, okay, um, what then can, I guess, non Black people or non, you know, what then can the white majority do? What can we do? How then can we educate them? Or what is it that they can do to be able to help, um, to be able to help in, in a situation like this? Because I think that that's the big question, right? A lot of us, are, some people are scared that um, if I go out to protest, um, I might get shot by the by the police or, or what have you. Like right now, we see even the president of the country saying that, uh, he's going to deploy the military to go out to the streets, patrol the streets, you know, get rid of the protesters and all of that and take things back to normal. Um, and it's like the, the, the minority people are just complaining now and just, you know, creating this unnecessary chaos and riots. So really, what can the white majority do to be able to help in this situation? What sort of, um, it seems like they have a lot of power and they'll have a lot of voice to be able to help uh, solve the problem. So. What is it that we can do to help them? But um, maybe more so, what is it that they can do to be able to help in, in this issue? Yeah, you know, so, so, so that's a controversial question for me because, I, you know, some people, let me say this, some people don't believe that white people should, you know, some people don't believe that white people have a place in, in sort of the social movements. And, and for reasons in which historically, when white people have acted in the interest of say, quote unquote, in the quote unquote interest, let me say that in that way, of black people, more violence comes on to black people. So even in the civil rights movement, for example, when white people would participate, the violence would come more harder onto black people. So even now you, you're starting to see this, right? Like the reason you can get the federal laws being passed the way they're being passed or Trump saying that is again, a dire consequence in which it, it would be more black people who actually bear the brunt of this. And it's been a very divisive issue in terms of movements and organizations in terms of like, what is the responsibility of white people and white allies? And sometimes that belies the real issue in terms of what is the responsibility for us as black people to use traditions in which we've had to make movements on our own accord, right? So in this country, mm-hmm. again, even in slavery, it was black people doing revolts 
the reason why you get the Second Amendment being passed is not because, you know, people are like, let's just arm ourselves. It's because black people were leaving plantations and were actually revolting against their slave masters, in which before there was an actual federal government, right, white people had to come together and say, look, we need people to be able to protect our property and interest, right? So at all yeah. points, differently, when black people have done things on their own, Right. There's always this contention for white people to say, what do we what is our responsibility? And when you look at what black people have always been saying is that we got this. Right. I mean, and, and I think what's happened more contemporaneously, and this is the challenge, you know, we have stopped to think of ourselves in very geopolitical terms. Right. Like what is the leveraging power across the globe that black people can have against Europe and the U.S.? Right. Like the, the questions we need to be asking is what are we owed from colonialism and slavery as a people? Right. Like what do white people, what do white nations owe us? Because when we live at the level of the individual whites and white communities, we lose the fact that we're talking about geographical ways in which black people are always met with violence. So even in the contents of Africa, violence may not be police violence. It's economical violence. Right. It's medicinal violence. It's technological violence that we face. And so for us, I think there's a real question because in any tradition, right, like, I mean, you, you saw the African freedom fighters were always tied to Africa. It was never just like Mandela and them or, you know, the, the, the freedom fighters, even in Ethiopia and even you know West Africa. It was always a continental fight about Africans and Africans across the globe have to be able to preserve a very elongative struggle in terms of what we do. So I think for me, that question has to shift from white communities. But what what is old? to Africans by European nations in the US, right? Like those are the real questions we need to be asking now, because for example, it's clear the UN is is not gonna do anything. You know, black people have been asking the UN since its inception to step in around human rights violations. How is it that Africa gets slammed as the most, you know, human rights violating continent? And and like we're talking about lynchings in this country were never actually approached by the UN. And there are reasons why that's the case, right? So So that these real strong ways in which I think for us, as a people moving forward, we have to really think in terms of geographical questions, right? Like what what is owed to African people across this globe? Yeah, because, I mean, I, I know that uh, it's unfair, right? Because when you did mention about the white violence, you talked about the fact that uh, they, they get labeled as, you know, mental illness and the fact that we can educate them, we can isolate them we and then give them all this treatment and maybe someday we can hopefully rehabilitate them and put them back into society to be productive citizens. Right, right. But when it comes to this now, it's like, there's, um, it's like there's nothing we can do. It's like um, it is incumbent upon those that have been oppressed to be able to find a solution to the problem. To me, it just blocks my mind. Why? Would, I mean, hypothetically, would, Maybe all the black folks in America leave in America solve the problem. Yeah, no, and that I mean, and that that has been the question, you know, and, and that has been the, this long question. This is why we're talking about the geographical ways in which we have to be able to think about this, because um, you know, and this is again going back to the early conversations we were having about Pan Africanism and even that fight, and even the ideas of fugitive slaves, right? Like Africans here moved across Canada. Right. Because there were, there were times in which they were like, you can't change America. Right. Like somebody like uh, Du Bois gives up on the American project because of this very reason. Yeah, this is interesting. You just brought up Canada. Just across the border in Canada, we don't see something like this. Why is it the case? I mean, is it that the Canadians are, you know, of a different breed? Why? Yeah, no, and I mean, there's something about, you know, America starts off with this idea of manifest destiny, right? Like when Christopher Columbus is dumb, you know, he, he lands here and thinks he's, so like, there are ways in which America was conceived as this paradise, 
and the ways in which white people were trying to redeem themselves and through these ideas of things like manifest destiny. So even when they brought Christianity here, in one hand, they brought the swords with them, right? You either conform to what we're doing or we'll slaughter you. So when you think about the very conception of America itself, you cannot remove violence from the very inception of what this country is, right? And so so there are ways in which, again, like, like we're talking about, like when you talk about what is the social contract, so even for most white people who are not white when they came to this continent, their ability to be accepted by white people was their ability to use violence against black people, right? And so there's a way in which violence in this country creates the ideas of democracy. So what it means to be democratic in this country is the ways in which the institutions of America and white people are able to use violence against racial groups. So let us maybe uh, come uh, a little bit to the modern, and let's look at um, let's look at the election of Barack Obama, the first black president right. in America. Uh, as somebody who is black, I one of the big things that the big um, I guess my big criticism of Obama is that Obama failed to address issues of um, of uh, black uh, you know violence or brutality and injustice. Mm-hmm. Front and center of his presidency, because um, I thought that what if that was the only shot that we got, right? What if that's the only yeah. shot and the only opportunity that we'd ever have, have gotten? And he did not, you know, be able to put that front and center. I mean, maybe for various reasons, you know, to him, and you know, I can't speak for him, but isn't it um, a really, I guess, frustrating that in a country where we can elect a black man? All the way to the most powerful office, um, but it's like you know, in a in a sense, it feels like um, the election of of Barack Obama was in a way to appease uh, the black folk and to tell the world that see, America is an open place. It's fair. You run a good election, no matter your race, you can win the presidency. But it's like this violence and this injustice even became, I guess, louder and bigger. You know, post-election of the of Obama and even during his presidency, we saw a lot of this. And so, yeah. is America ever going to heal? Is America ever going to, in a way, address this issue? You know, and put it once and for all, because it a lot of this is just confusing, right? On one end, yeah. it seems like we can heal a black man as president, but the next minute, it's like we go down and we're gunning all the black males we can find. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. And, you know, so the, the, one of the interesting things about Obama's presidency, right, like we have to recall that he gets elected under the auspices of what happens with 9-11, what America is starting to look like, right, post-9-11. Yeah. Um, you start to see the anti-Islamic um, rhetoric that comes in, right, the, the xenophobia against people from the Middle East. Um, and also, you know, what happens with Katrina, Right. Katrina becomes a moment in which we see black people get gunned down, the federal government not being responsive to that. You see the rise of actually, you know, one of the I think at that time, the NRA president or actually, you know, he made a case that Katrina should remind white people 
how the federal government didn't protect their property. And so he was arguing for white people to be armed. And you start to see the first time where black people are getting gunned down in the modern era by white people. Right? I think it was not until recently, maybe 2012. 14 or 16, where the FBI actually persecuted a couple of those people who were shooting down black people. So when, so when Obama, so remember that Obama is part of that Katrina moment, right? Because he's still a Democratic um, senator and he's going down there. And so Obama is coming up under these auspices of two moments of really America's hit, you know, one from the outside by what's happening with, with bin Laden and Al Qaeda, but also internally with what happens with Katrina and that response. So even when Obama is starting to run, his rhetoric covers up that violence, right? And you you see this because he had, I think, about nine incidents where nooses were hung between his um, incumbency and presidency, right? And no, at no yeah. point does he address that. Like, I mean, so so what you start to see is when Obama is out here trying to make this rhetoric about a perfect union, mind you, he's using language of Lincoln. Lincoln, who was the same person who was like, you know, I'll do everything to preserve the union if it means, you know, sending these slaves back to Canada to Cuba or I let them kill each other, right? Like, so when Obama tapped into that rhetoric, you have people who remember that Lincoln was out here trying to say things about black people. And so one of the reasons to get shot is like, what were you doing taking our slaves? So when you get then a black man who does not attra- address white violence and its roots, right? You start to see the way in which if you can't get to Obama, you start to take that violence out into black communities. So you see yeah. the Tea Party and you see the shootings, right? You can trace this logic into this very ways in which, again, 9-11 and Katrina precipitates white violence. What is the response to white people? Oh, they feel they're being attacked by everybody from the Middle East or foreigners, immigrants. And most specifically, you double down on black people, right? So black people then become the scapegoat for America's problems. You saw this with COVID-19 when you get that black guy who gets up there and say, black people need to stop eating so much, right? Like, wait, what? You know, it's like, Black people have always been the scapegoat for America's issues, which then un- allows white people to say, we can do with these people as we choose. If I'm getting you correctly, it looks like we are never going to heal from something like this as long as we have black people roaming the streets of America. No, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer. I'm a critical race theorist, you know, as a student of Derrick Bell, a student of the early 19th century black thinkers. Um, you know, so, I mean, the one thing, you know, black people argued for really in this country was the ending of slavery, right? Like it was, it was black people actually, you know, from runaway slaves to slaves who participated in a civil war, right? Like slavery doesn't end here because of Lincoln or white people in the North and the South. It's really that black people fought to abolish that system of slavery, right? And so yeah. even, even in Africa, like we talk about colonialism, it was Africans fighting you know, these modern European powers to actually bring them down, right? So there are ways in which for us, again, we have to be able to think seriously about what is this idea of peacefulness when there's never been a peaceful moment in this this modern era in which there's a transition to power in any sense of the word, right? Like no nation is formed under the guise in which it's protecting its borders or it's going to use a type of way to rejuvenate itself through means that may not be always protesting or or nonviolence. So I think when we talk about the predicament of black people in this country, this has been the historical issue since the time of slavery, right? White violence is always omnipresent. And at different eras and different times, black people have responded to that violence in different ways. Like, I think that's sometimes, that's the missing rhetoric or legacy that's not always talked about is black people have always responded even if that response has meant that, you know, white institutions have come down harder on them, but there's always been a response to white violence. And so for us, 
unfortunately what happens in the 1960s is we start to use more moral appeals and discourse, right? Like, so like Obama, so like think about what happens with like Louis Gates when he's entering in his home and the police come up and tell him, what are you doing? They think he's a burglar, right? A Harvard professor, you know, and yeah. he's stopped by the police. And what does Obama do? He sits down and has a beer summit. Like, we're, I mean, in any other con, like, you know, it's like, wait, what are we talking about? But we've been enculturated yeah. to think we can talk white violence out of its effect on black bodies. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> this is, I mean, this is, uh, again, this is, this is interesting, but at the same time, it's so frustrating. It is frustrating because, yes, I understand that it is we, yes, it is a black people, even, even when we go back to colonial days, they had to fight for their independence. We see the same thing here with slavery, but it just feels like something is missing. Something had to happen. So let, I mean, if we contrast this experience with that of, say, South Africa during the apartheid and in maybe even Rwanda during the, its genocide, we can see that um, after Mandela left prison, um, they, you know, they had the Trudeau reconciliation stuff. Again, for all the faults that that had, you know, some people said that was a sham, not, nothing really worked out well. Um we can now maybe we, we can contrast that maybe with Rwanda, right? Rwanda had the same thing and they had these public courts where they had to shame people that perpetrated some of this violence. They had these um um they, they had to do a lot of these things and Rwanda had to go through this acceptance that this was something that happened, this was something bad that happened to us, and we have to be able to, you know, reconcile that. Is that maybe something that is missing here in America? Because even when we look at, say, civil rights and we look at the end of slavery and all of that stuff, America really hasn't gone through this reconciliation process. Maybe it is why, you know, Barack Obama will hold, you know, his press conference and, you know, and all of that. And, you know, maybe we're expecting more, but, you know, they just have these random press conferences and thoughts and prayers being offered, you know, left and right when we want action. So would something like that really help? Um, maybe push the needle in here in America where we accept the things that have happened in the past and say these things have happened. We need to reconcile. We need to heal as a nation for us to be able to move on and really maybe even publicly shame people. And you know, I don't know. I don't know if it's prison sentences or however want to mandate what uh, uh, a solution for or the crimes that some people had committed would be, but. Would that even would that help in America, or is that something that is not even possible? That's something we should just forget about because the country is not really at a state where it is ready to accept any of this. Yeah, no, that's a great question, man. That's a great question, man. Um, I mean, you know, <laughs> you, you know, I mean, Americans are flippant, right? Like, they, there's no way white people are going to apologize to black people for what they've done and has happened to them. You, know, you saw that with the federal. We saw that with the federal bureau. And the ending of Reconstruction, what happened was the KKK were like, "You freed our slaves. We want our niggas back, right?" Like, um, I mean, even if you, so, it, so, you know, one of the things I, I did over the course of my time in grad school and even this semester was, I've been collecting like these manifestos by these white shooters, and I use them as teaching moments for students because they can deal with here's a real time moment in which we're dealing with white violence. So you don't think I'm just talking historically. So one of the things that you know I've looked at a lot is when I looked at Darren Roof, the young white boy in South Carolina who shot nine black people in a church. In that manifesto, he actually goes in about this idea of white privilege and white people having to atone for things like slavery and racism. Right? He says, no, without those things, this country wouldn't be what it is. 
right? So said mm-hmm. differently, even white people understand that the country would not be where it is if they did not own slaves or they didn't have segregation or they didn't have the KKK to be able to enforce these notions of white superiority. So even that's why when we talk about these notions about white privilege, the question is, what are white people willing to give up about this country, right? It's not about their ontological existence or the little change that may have in their pockets, but it's really about this country. How do white people conceive of their their liberty in this country in such ways in which you can create institutions like slavery, Jim Crow, Reconstruction, genocide, right? Like internment camps, right? Like for indigenous people and even Asians, right? Like to fight with Mexico to take that land. So that's that's yeah. where a lot of this comes in is that like white people see themselves like this is NATO to them. This land is NATO. And you saw that with apartheid, right? Like this was that fight about what was going on in that apartheid and with the, the segregationist laws, but even the Boers and everybody went in to make a case for like, this is our land. How is this your yeah. land? Right, like, so that's, th- those are the, some of the tough, tough conversations about what is being given up, right? Like it's not just appeals to morality and saying we're sorry for enslaving you for 400 plus years. It's like, wait, what? Yeah, I, I well, I agree with you that um, maybe, I mean, as you explained this now, it's, yeah, what are you willing to give up? And, and, and maybe that is what is missing then. I think that is what, maybe that's what people need to start to, you know, think about. Maybe it is that, by us having this conversation, it is going to maybe give up, I, I, I don't know, decades of economic growth. It is right. maybe we're giving up that uh, economy. Um, we're not going to advance as much. Or maybe that is the fear that we, you know, we, we're not willing to give that up yet. And so we are going to endure all of these and we're going to have these, again, press conferences. We're going to put out statements of thoughts and prayers. We're going to put about statements condemning injustice and all the violence but when it comes to the real action that we have to do we're not willing to push the needle that far you know i think that again this goes back to the exact same uh, uh, thoughts that ran through my mind when we you know on our university campuses i mean i, I happen to study in a university campus that you know confederate leaders streets and buildings are named after and this was something that was going through in america right at the time where, you know, all the way down to Princeton, where it was a major one, where the, the former president, Woodrow Wilson, um, you know, has a whole school named after him mm-hmm. and buildings and dorms where students live in. And with all the protests and that were going on during that time, I guess the real question there that we as students really did not answer and did not tell our administrations what was what we were willing to give up if they were not willing to respond to us and to be able to take down the right. statutes, rename the buildings, rename the... It is that we were not willing to tell them we are willing to give up our education. We're willing to give up these yeah. prestigious degrees from your institution unless you're, you know, we're willing to give this up if you refuse to, to answer these questions to us. I mean... Would that even help? Uh, yes, uh, on one sense, it makes sense that people, you know, what is it we're willing to give up on? But even if we do give this up, you know, would this solve the problem? I think that's the, you know, the other question in my mind, like even if we do give it up, because what is going through people's mind, right? You know, I was having a conversation with a friend. It's like, what would, you know, what would me giving up my one, you know, maybe my one, uh, salary or giving up my life you know what would that do i I mean 
as a Christian, that's a different question. I mean, we can answer that a little bit differently, right? Christ mm-hmm. giving up his life was able to save mankind. But, you know, in such a situation, is one person giving up their, you know, I guess maybe their presidency, their their education, their degree, is that really going to change things? Yeah. No, I mean, that's a great question, man. Yeah. And, and like you're saying, I mean, part of this is, is the collective response to what are we giving up? Um, and, and, you know, and another part of this is like, we're talking about human problems, right? Like any, any human problem does not have some type of sort of like, here's the ultimate solution to this thing, right? Like, so said differently, the yeah. idea of American democracy is that it's a try and error, right? Like there isn't a one thing that's been the perfect thing. It's like, that's why you have four years of elections, right? Like, you know, like there's this, so part of this is this understanding, even with racism, unless we try, right? Like there, there are ways in which we have to be able to say, how are we trying to ensure this thing is eradicated? Right. Like, and what are we yeah. willing to give up so differently for enslaved people? They're like, I'm willing to give up being a slave. If that means me dying, if it means me crossing the, 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 the continent in terms of going to Cuba or these other places like England to run away from the persecution or move away from the persecution, or even if it means giving up my freedom because my family was not free, you know, some enslaved people go back to, to, to be with their families because they didn't want to give that up. It's the same thing in colonialism. What are we willing to give up? This notion that we're inferior, right? Like this notion that white people are the best people to govern us. So there's always a yeah. question. So for us, in our modern age, it's the same thing. What are we willing to give up? The comforts of being, you know, uh, being surveilled by Facebook and Instagram, right? Like if that means for us to have a better world, if it means like places that come into our communities and instead of invest, yeah, they shouldn't even be there in the first place because this notion of like companies investing is really corporations taking over your land, right? Like, so there are things that we have to ask, like what are we all willing to give up for a just world? Because when we even use these appeals to say like, you know, said differently, Mandela gave up 28 years of his life. True. Yeah. All right. Like, I mean, like, Mumba gave up his life, right? So, like, when we, you know, when we talk about what are we, you know, like, that's that's the missing part about these, quote-unquote, evocations of these movements and people-led movements is that they gave up something. And for most people, is the ultimate price, their lives, right? Like, these people are not here with us today. And even in their time, it was try and error. None of them had the perfect solution, but they gave up something to try for what they believed was a solution to that problem. So for us, when we think about these issues, I mean, it's a scary thing. It's frightful. But we also know nothing changes unless people actively engage and try. Yeah. So, I mean, if I if I hear you correctly, we need the spirit of our liberators. We need the spirit of Mandela. We need the spirit of Mugabe and Lumumba and uh, Thomas Sankara and all the others that have come before us. So we need those sort of spirit and we have to be willing to do that because I think that this is what is central, right? Am I willing to give up my, I guess, first world life here in America to be able mm-hmm. to fight for this course? Am I, I mean, because, I mean, it's tiring, you know, it is tiring. Day after day, you know, we move from one kid running down the street to this guy, police on, and I mean, since then, there are just so many that you, we can't even remember. I, I mean, it, it's like, yeah. this. 2020 in particular has just been, uh, uh, it's like every day comes with its own news. And it's like, yep. it's like nothing is happening. You know, kids get killed, innocent uh, civilians die and all of that stuff. And we have these sessions and, you know, I guess nice speeches and prayers being offered, but it's like nothing moves beyond that. 
Yeah, no, absolutely. No, absolutely. And, and again, right, like, and for again, for material things to change, there's, I mean, I think any, any type of, I mean, and, you know, if evoking freedom fighters may be something that's too abstract for us, like, just think about it in your personal life. You, you understand that, like, if you're going to progress and be better at something, you're going to have to give up something. Like, if I want to be a better athlete, I'm going to have to give up, um, I'm going to have to give up, like, binge watching movies or eating yeah. junk food. Right? Like, so mm-hmm. we understand that just in our most micro spaces that if we want to progress just as a person, certain things I need to give up. That's the, I mean, that's what we're dealing with when we talk about social issues. What are we all willing to give up if we're trying to create a just world? Because again, it's human beings, right? Like it's people coalescing together about what is a thing that you put permanently here. That something like an institution in which violence is okay. You have to be able yeah. to say, what is it going to cost those people to give that up? I mean, that's what politics is, right? Like this is what we mean when we're talking about politics and rationality. And so you start to understand for white people, for example, they invested in not giving up things like white violence, right? Like that's something they're holding on to. For black people, we have to be able to say, what are we willing to give up to ensure white violence is not the normal play, normal thing that actually shapes how we think about being human in this world, right? Like, so, so these are the contentions that always are happening when we're talking about movements. Um, but even for us, I mean, again, like, you know, I think this generation has been asking itself different ways. This question, Black Lives Matter. I mean, that's a serious concern. And what are we willing to give up to ensure that Black Lives Matter be beyond us, right? Like the frustration of death is real. And how do we project into the future? Because the, the legacy of any Black social movement has always been about the future of the race. That's, I mean, so many people laid their lives for us, people that they don't know. They don't know you and I, you know, like, but they yeah. gave up the ultimate life to be able to say it someday, you know, when King gets up to give that speech, he doesn't know the people are going to come up to him, you know, and even when he gets shot, you know, so, so I think for us, I mean, the honoring of legacy is not just to symbolize people and put quotes up, right, but it's a real concern. How do you progress that legacy so that 20 years and 30 years from now, when black people are saying, oh, COVID-19 was happening, police violence was happening, and here's how Black people responded to ensure that we have a little better space to be able to live life as human beings. I, I get what you're saying, and yes, it makes sense. We we really have to decide and talk about what is it we're willing to give up. But if we go on the other side of this argument and ask the question, why do we have to give up anything? I mean, are we asking too much, right? It's not like we're asking for that, uh, I don't know, give us the keys to the Republic or something like that. It's just, right. I just want to live my life. I just want to go down the street and run. I just want to, you know, I said, if, if I were a parent, it's I just want my kid to go to school and come back home. Mm. So, I mean, it's like, is that too much to ask for? Do I have to give up something for that when I'm just asking for the basic things of life? Yeah, no, I mean that's a great point, and and you know that's a great point, and and unfortunately the way we have constructed this reality in this world, right? Like you know when you start off, when you start off with people who used, and this is not a knock against religion, but when people believe that the Bible was the source in which guided people to enslave people, even for economic reasons, and even that you know you are a master of another human being, and then that moved into rational thought and with in terms of enlightenment and passing laws and how society was organized. You've we've, we've created a world implicitly in which 
we assume that some people are actually subordinate to other people. And that thing functions in different ways. It's not just even in terms of racism. Think about class mobility, right? Like you're, yeah. you, people think you're a better person because you got a PhD, right? Like there's something about this idea that you are, so, you know, you're superior intellectually because you have three letters behind your name, PhD, right? Like yeah. we, we see the ways in which we subordinate people based on different things, what they don't have or may have. So what we so what we're under is in a world in which we live through these categories and how we think about the world, our experiences, other people and our own lives, the things we strive for, right? You want to be so distinct from another person because you think hard work creates a particular identity of who you are. So these are things that we're struggling with. So it's not just like the race component, but the way even capitalism functions, right? Like the way religion functions in our lives. We're always constantly trying, I mean, again, not to knock religion, but just think about the distinction between a sinner and a non-sinner, right? Like there are ways we're constantly living in a world in which we're affirming how superior I am in comparable to another person's subordination, right? Like, so, 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 and that's why thinking, I mean, this requires a lot of thinking and hard work in which we, you're constantly having to negotiate in your own head, your own life, the values that you think are important to live in this world. And so now just take that at that level in which, you know, one person is trying to distinguish themselves from other people and put that in a group of people in which that's something that's constantly reinforced in them, that you're superior because ontologically this world was made for you as a white person. This has been good. I think that um, hopefully this will be able to help uh, a lot of us in this moment of, um, I guess, all the questions and all the griefs and all the despair and we're wondering. Um, so we need to take action. We need to be able to, I guess, get involved in politics. We have to vote for leaders. We have to, um, you know, we have to fight, I guess, for our own uh, freedom. We have to be willing to give something up. Yeah. So thank you very much. But um, before we go here, it is really, how are you feeling? How, I mean, how, yeah. how are you, you know, feeling personally about all of these things? Um, are you? Um, I know I'm worried. I'm tired. I'm, I'm scared as a black man running around the streets here in uh, in in Houston. Yeah. No, brother. No, I appreciate you asking me, man. It's disheartening, man. You know, there there are times. You know, I just had a friend. She was asking me. She texted me a little earlier about like when's the last time you cried. You know, and I was telling her. You know, I cried. I I didn't tell her I cried during this moment. I thought I cried in a different moment. Um, but yeah, man. I mean, it's. It's heartbreaking. You know, there's, there's no words for this. There's no experience. There's nothing, you know, like like we're talking about, you know, I mean, you, you're you getting your PhD, you, you're, you're practically a doctor and, you know, on your way to celebrate you and your fiance, man, you get accosted by the police and you're treated as though you're not even a human being, right? So so that it's, it's a dumbfounding experience in which you're trying to understand, like, what have I done? You know, you know there's nothing that I could do in which this, this thing is always present. Um, so the one thing I've been trying to do is particularly, and you know, there's there's a really an interesting movement right now in the American Academy that's arising called Black Male Studies. Um, my former advisor is one of the principal founders. He actually has a really good book around a lot of these things. Um, the Man Not is a really good text, um, but he he's kind of showed this idea of black male misandry, which is the hatred of of black men, and we've been talking about it in in different ways in this conversation. Um, so one of the things we've been trying to really do is to take stock of the ways in which, as a black man, when I experience the ways in which people approach me because of my black maleness and the way I'm treated for that, trying to find spaces where I can actually have conversations with other people, and most specifically black males, right? Like African males, black American males, to be able to process these things because we need to find language for this, man. Like it's disheartening 
and sad, right? Like the brother's calling out for his mother. Like there are so many of us, you know, so things like that in which trying to find language and hold space for each other as we're grieving. So, so it's been, it's been a, a tough moment, man. I've, you know, been on the phone conversations, people checking in on me, me checking on other people, even us doing this podcast, right? We're, we're checking up on each other. So, so I appreciate to be able to, able to converse with you, my brother. I, I tell you that all the time, man. I love you, bro. I appreciate all the work that you've been doing since I've known you and now. And so I'm always appreciative every time maybe I have a chance to converse. So, you know, this is therapy for me to be able to talk to another African mind about our experiences in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think the the feeling here is mutual is that um, I think once in moments like these uh, gathering and uh, talking to people who are like you, um, I think it brings some level of comfort and um, and maybe and even hope because you know as we talk about this, it you know it also gives us ideas and we begin to reflect on what is it that we even want our own legacy to look like and what is it that we want to be able to do to be able to uh, to contribute uh, uh, you know as a solution to this problem. Um, yeah, so. I mean, one last uh, uh, thing here from you. So do you think that we should go out on the streets and protest? <laughs> Absolutely. Protest in every way. Protest at home, protest in the streets, pro- protest in the academy, protest wherever you're at. I mean, protest doesn't, you know, doesn't have to just be the streets. But yeah, I mean, and I, again, for us, you know, I think there are just two things that I would say, again, to the listeners and, you know, us too. I mean, there, there are two questions here. What are we willing to give up? And then what is the future of the black race? What is our responsibility to the future of the black race? And again, that doesn't mean we all have to have kids or any of that, but like, we just have to think seriously, what am I doing to ensure that black people survive a hundred years from now? You know, like, how do I think about that? Do I think of myself thinking about other people beyond myself? So I think those are the two more pressing things for me as we were talking this conversation, right? Like how are each of us in our own humble ways taking up those challenges to give up certain things to ensure that there's a future in the race? And then what do we hope for the future of the race and how are we actively participating in that future? Yeah, that's actually a very good point. And uh, it is one that uh, we can uh, we can stop on here. It's really, what are you willing to give up and um you know, what is your responsibility to the future of our own race? I think that that is something that I hope that um, you who is listening can be able to ponder upon and uh, think about how and what you can do to be able to contribute to this uh, discussion. I know that it can be really uh, challenging. I know that, yes, just like you, I'm also very tired. I am I'm just exhausted. Uh, it, it can be daunting turning on the news and just seeing the things that happened. Um, but... I think that it's incumbent on us to create the change and to create the society that we really want um, for the future. So um, I hope that you're all uh, safe out there, uh, checking on each other, because it is a scary world that we live in right now. And uh, until we meet again, thank you guys for tuning in and joining us here at the Carrefour.